Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 125. In this episode, we're talking about interpreting Philemon with Dr. Dennis Edwards. Dr. Dennis Edwards is Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago and the author of Might from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, we had a lovely chat with Dr. Edwards about Philemon, t- jumped into a number of exegetical issues and thought a bit about the trajectory as well uh, of Philemon and where it kind of hits us today in our contemporary settings. Josh, Daniel, and Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation with Dr. Edwards? I think what I most appreciated about Dr. Edwards' time with us uh, today is the fact that he is uplifting the epistles in a way that I think challenges our societal norms, uh, and then also allows us to see, I think, the restorative nature and the unifying nature of the church as a whole, all encapsulated in one letter. Uh, but the, the, the dynamic aspects of what that looks like for us um, being followed by a New Testament church model uh, and an appalling kind of ethic that we get to examine uh, in our conversation. Well, I really appreciated his interpretive approach to the book, I thought he gave wonderful consideration to the historical aspects of it, the exegetical aspects, as well as uh, the broader canonical connections in how he's reading the text. And in addition to that, also thinking about the text in light of the church today and how the church can benefit from it, ways that we can be challenged by it and ways that we can grow from it. I loved uh, just how Dr. Edwards brought not only his background to the text, but also just a thoughtfulness from the different just realms of scholarship to bear on Philemon. And then also how he incorporated it with his other work, like Might from the Margins and some of the work he's doing on humility. It's just been, it's an interesting mix of thoughtful scholarship that was uh, super interesting too, the way he tracked different exegetical arguments and applied it to the church today. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Edwards. Well, Dr. Edwards, we're so glad to have you on the pod with us today. Yeah, it really is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So we want to talk about Philemon, and I think a good place to start would be the setting for the letter. What What is the occasion that leads Paul to write this letter? You know, among sort of the main options that are thrown out there is maybe Onesimus yeah. is a runaway slave, maybe Onesimus right. is a, as an asylum seeker, or maybe Philemon actually sent Onesimus to check in on Paul or something like that. What's your sort of take on, <laughs> on that, that sort of debate and, and what, what really kind of causes Paul to write this letter in the first place? Right. Well, you definitely hit on all of them, all the main um, ideas that are out there. I think the um, <laughs> I, sometimes the answer to that question, uh, I think, is related to our own social location. So I've, I've been working on this uh, a little bit on the letter because of a volume that um, uh, your friend, our friend uh, Isama Kali is one of the editors on called New Testament in Color. And uh, so I did some work on Colossians and Philemon. 
And I think, you know, when people are not necessarily feeling the impact of, of slavery in the Americas, maybe it's, it's easy to think about the fugitive slave theory. That's the one that's been, you know, predominant. But, but others have um, brought uh, their lenses to the text and thought about some other views. One that's a particularly attractive to me is that of Lewis Brogdon. He has the, he calls it his exclusionary uh, koinonia theory that, um, uh, that the idea is that, um, you know, the community of, of Philemon, that Christian community should have embraced Onesimus. Uh, the fact that he's not converted until he meets Paul uh, raises some questions. And, uh, and even verse, verse six there at the beginning, the notion that, um, that uh, Paul is encouraging Philemon to somehow fulfill what's lacking of the fellowship may be a reference to uh, their falling short. The church is falling short of including Onesimus early on. I find that kind of intriguing, but I would, I would say that I've been leaning more toward the sense of, of Philemon having sent Onesimus to minister to Paul. I, um, since I'm in the, right now in this a place of, um, of dropping names, I already mentioned Esau, and you all studying in Europe. I'm kind of jealous. I studied here in the, in the States, but I studied with the late, great Joseph Fitzmaier. And uh, so he, he, had a, he has a commentary, one of the few standalone commentaries you know, on Philemon, starting to see more, and um, in the Anchor series. And he was into that uh, Amicus Domini theory, as you mentioned, the asylum-seeking theory that he went to go, that um, Onesimus went to find Paul to make a case. That was appealing to me for a long time. I, I really thought that makes good sense to me. And there's a certain agency on uh, Onesimus's part in that. So I would say those two kind of rank high for me that Philemon sent Onesimus or that Onesimus went to make an appeal to, uh, to find Paul and make an appeal. But I am leaning more toward the uh, sent, uh, sent theory. So how does the theory that Philemon sent Onesimus, how does that change interpretation as you kind of walk through the kind of the traditional, maybe Western interpretation um, mm -hmm. I think about like your article you wrote for Christianity Today a while back mm -hmm. reading, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, read your Bible through a kaleidoscope, right? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And, and you know, you talked about the traditional Western interpretation, the colonial interpretation that kind of rolls mm -hmm. through. So yeah. how does Philemon sending Onesimus question that challenge, that interpretation that we typically see? Yeah, I think when, when there's the, uh, thank you for that, I, the, the notion of Philemon, I'm sorry, of Onesimus running away, and I've actually done that in class too. I've switched the names. Uh, with the, um, the notion of Onesimus running away fills a certain stereotype. And I would say there are scholars who certainly um, buy into that because it did happen. And there were, um, there were enslaved people who, who ran away, who became fugitives, who might even stole something on the way out. So because that has happened, there's an assumption that that's what Onesimus is done, but it is an assumption. Even, even the language of Paul's um, appeal back to Philemon, where he says um, somewhere around verse 17 and 18 in there, that is if, if he owes you anything, he says, uh, if, he's if he's wronged you, he says, actually, it's a, a dikeo. So if he's wronged you or owes anything, he says, you know, charge it to my account, put it on my tab, you know, but that notion of if is I think we should 
or lean into that, that there's the possibility of something having happened, or he simply owes him time because he's been away longer than he intended to be away. But to assume that uh, Onesimus is somehow fulfilling a certain stereotype of uh, someone who's not trustworthy, someone who lacks his, uh, shirks his responsibilities, someone who is uh, a lawbreaker, plays more into assumptions, I think, of you know, dominant culture than it necessarily has to play into the way enslaved people uh, behaved. I wonder, um, have you come across the view of Ulrika Roth? Uh, she's a, a professor at the University of Edinburgh. She has this um, interpretation that maybe Onesimus was uh, co-owned by Paul and, and Philemon. Have you, have you come across that view or do you have thoughts about this idea? And it, for example, she uses it to explain the koinonia that Paul and, and, and Philemon have, that they have a business relationship. Well, that's interesting. I don't know that theory well at all. And I've been trying to, to put together a lot of recent study um, for a different essay that I've been working on. So, so I'll, look, I'll ask you about the source. I'll get that from you. I don't know. It's, you know, what's interesting to me, I mean, so here we are hypothesizing. I don't, I'd like to see the, that argument because I don't know about Paul's owning enslaved people or having enslaved people. It's, it just seems like the way he, he maneuvered that would that would have come through some way, especially with the way he talks about people as fellow workers, fellow soldiers, and all that kind of language. And uh, I, I so I'd be curious to see some information, but I don't know that 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 theory. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, even the shout outs at the end of Colossians, where where Onesimus is mentioned, uh, there's the opportunity to somehow you know um, uh, maybe mention someone's state, but. Uh, but he doesn't do that. So I'm kind of curious. One thing that struck me as I was just looking back through um, Philemon this afternoon, thinking about this conversation, I just kind of wanted to, to come back to it and see what stood out to me, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of fresh eyes. What is it that, that kind of yeah. comes to the foreground? And this time reading through it, what really stood out to me was Paul's appeal to love and Paul going just kind of exceedingly describing, um, you know, him appealing to him in love, him talking about Onesimus as, um, you know, becoming my son and uh, he's my very heart and those sorts of things. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like an accentuated thing that he's, he's almost emphasizing over and over again, that this is your brother. This is someone who's dear to me. So if I'm dear to you, then he must, be, you know, and I'm wondering what you make of that um, in light yeah. of some of these interpretive moves about what's actually going on here. Yeah. Thank you for that too. I, I have often wondered why, you know, we don't hear from Onesimus. There's no apologizing for him. And we certainly don't hear his voice. You know, modern day, of course, we'd want to hear from him. And it's, and it's even problematic that we have Paul speaking for him. But in Paul speaking for him, it's what you just said. It's the language of family and love. You know, he's become my son. Uh, he appeals to a Philemon on the basis of love. So even, um, um, you know, Dr. Wright, N.T. Wright's um, big book, um, Paul and faithfulness of God, I mean, he opens up with this letter and the notion of reconciliation, right? That there's, that that's what's central. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm of the mind that uh, the big picture is what you just said, that love, fellowship, that language is in there a couple of times too, the 
um, the notion of family, kinship, that's what's central here, um, that, that they become brothers in flesh and, you know, uh, he'll be with you in person, in flesh, and also in the Lord, brother. So I, I think that that's key for me, that that's, that's central, because that then picks up themes like from, you know, Galatians 3.28 and other places in Paul, or even uh, Colossians 3.11, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, that it's sometimes hard to reconcile those household codes with, with this book, right, and or with this short letter. But that, to me, is key, is to see the, the language of love, and fellowship that um, that permeates through there, which I think also is not a, it's not it doesn't play into the the power dynamic. It doesn't allow Philemon to uh, he he doesn't appeal to Philemon on the basis of power, even on his own power. That the appeal is based on love. Yeah, and it's almost like it it subverts the conversation away from more of an economic conversation, like mm. oh he owes mm. this, or okay now I'm giving him back, you know, and mm. It, instead, it's the love has no bounds kind of mm, reunited mm. in Christ and love is not something that is calculable or it's not, you know, mm. we're sort of in this infinite debt to one another because of Christ yeah, um, I like that. to love. And so it's, it's moving away from what do I owe you or mm-hmm. what does he owe you <laughs> to yeah. um, this deep bond of love that totally changes those terms. That, that that's good. I mean, there's the economic language, right? If he if he took anything or, or not took anything, but if he's wronged you or owes you, and then but Paul says you owe me your life. But even in that, it's there's a certain economic language, but it's it's moved out of commerce. Commerce is an exam is a, is the language, but the reality is love and relationship. So I'm I'm with you on that. Thank you. I guess to to kind of fall in line with what Dr. Bowen was saying. I, there was a couple elements that came to my mind, uh, restorative justice, mm. and then also kind of the act of retribution. I think many people could read this text in our, in our modern context and have those two elements in play across different spectrums. Mm-hmm. Uh, from your perspective, Dr. Edwards, uh, is, there, is there an element of restorative justice that we see in, oh, the, man. in, this, I, in this space? And then that's, also, that's great. Uh, like, what what is a what is like a Pauline viewpoint of like mm-hmm. retribution, right? Like, <laughs> like it is it, so countercultural in this moment yeah, uh, yeah. to not see any form of retribution, uh, even directly or indirectly within this passage, mm-hmm. and then perceiving if restorative justice is an element of this passage uh, that, that that we're reading. So. Um, We'll love your thoughts on that. No, I, I I really appreciate that question too. I've been, I've been thinking about how this letter was used in our own country here to to uh, for Christians to advocate for the Fugitive Slave Act. So if you have runaway slaves, to have them sent back to their masters on the strength of this letter, that as if it's about punishment, right? I mean that's 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 the justification, and and uh, and the sad thing about it is it's 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 the opposite of that. It's what you just said. It's not about punishment or retribution. Um, so I, I feel like that's, of course, the way people have interpreted that is coming from their own frame of wanting to um, uh, preserve slavery and to um, uh, use this letter to bolster that that system. But but you're right. Paul is not asking for that. In fact, even in the advocacy for Onesimus, even though I I um, already said we don't hear his voice. Um, at the same time, Paul's advocacy is is such that 
Onesimus doesn't have to beg or plead or in any way, Paul steps in to speak on his behalf and does not um, suggest any kind of punishment for this. To have somebody come back as brother and, and better than a slave, Hooper Dulon, you know, he says better than a slave, that that says a lot, that says nothing about retribution. That says everything about reconciliation or even better than reconciliation about, um, about family, about love, about unity, uh, the, the kind of language, language we were talking about earlier. So yeah, thank you for that. And on, on verse 16, I, I'm curious too about this idea of him coming back as, you know, more than, more than a slave, even, mm -hmm. even as a beloved brother and, 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 and it's qualified as both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do yeah. you, do, do you have thoughts on this idea that maybe Onesimus is possibly actually the, the, the physically the brother of yeah. Philemon? Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the work of, uh, of Alan Dwight Callahan, um, now that was back in '90s, early '90s. In fact, I was—it uh, was even before, while I just was starting my own doctoral studies, so I didn't come across that until a few years into it. Um, and there's hardly anybody that has uh, accepted that view. And I wonder, like, is there a clock that says we don't have to mention it anymore after you know 30 years or something? I don't know, but I do think. I, I mean, it's just not. It's hard to to. Um, to play that out in any in any sense from the rest of the letter. But I do think what, what Callahan was doing was trying to do what other scholars have also been doing, which is to um, uh, allow, Ones give Onesimus some dignity. And, uh, and in many ways, that was one pathway there that he was seeing with that language. So while I don't agree that Onesimus is, is physical brother to Philemon, I do like any move that says let's let's give the brother some some respect and dignity even though paul is doing all the talking uh in this letter anyway the other part of that is some have argued that maybe onesimus is the letter carrier which would make him even maybe the letter reader and um and there he would have opportunity to speak for himself even if it's not in the letter itself um so i think there's nothing in the letter to suggest that he's blood brother but um but uh but at the same time i i, I respect any move to uh, give dignity to onesimus so i've always looked at philemon i think david de silva's work changed my mm. understanding like the honor shame dynamic right mm -hmm. and then always looked at the aspect of what paul was doing with philemon and to lift onesimus up into and subvert like slave culture in general yeah. through the honor shame dynamic um, with the, especially the kinship, the brotherhood language, the love language, right, right. going past that and bringing it into the, bring him into family and yeah. making him not just a, so we talk about economics, and, but I think, I think the honor shame dynamic is more prevalent in there, especially when it yeah. comes to retribution, reconciliation, things like that. What do you think? Well, I agree. I agree. I think that's exactly there. I, I, um, my, my, um, my concern had been that, uh, um, um, focusing uh, so much on Onesimus as a runaway slave, which was, you know, prevalent view is that we didn't pay, pay that much attention to those kinds of dynamics, the dynamic of family, the dynamic of honor, shame. I, I, I think I, 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 I'm in agreement with you, I guess is what I'm saying. I've, I just feel like we haven't, um, 
we haven't paid enough attention to to the honor shame dynamic. I, I'm actually with uh, the Silva on this. I um, yeah. So my biggest concern though is not it, it, the biggest. My biggest concern has been shaming Onesimus for the sake of celebrating Philemon as if this is a letter that's about the abolition of of slavery. So so you have on the one hand those people who wanted to use the letter to bolster the Fugitive Slave Act. But then I hear some other folks as if it's some manifesto of, of some anti-Roman slavery manifesto, which I don't think it's that either. I mean, Paul certainly had the language of, um, of manumission. He had the language of, of um, dismantling the structure, but he doesn't do that straight out. In fact, he kind of cleverly suggests that, that um, Philemon do something liberative for Onesimus without spelling out the details of what that looks like. So yes, there's honor shame dynamics. There's a power dynamic that Paul is subtle about with, with, with Philemon, but there is no stark call for abolition. And then there's no stark uh, support of slavery either. Yeah. And I love that because if Onesimus isn't the kind of trope where they have to shame him to get to that, like the honor shame dynamic is just increased more fully through the love aspect mm. or the family aspect ah, of it. Oh, that's good. That's good. And it, it just, it brings him into a different realm of subtly subverting even that family culture that, that Philemon yeah. has and, yeah. and making that a center point for the church there. That's good. I, I subtle subversion. I, I like that. And, uh, and I definitely think we see that with this, this letter, um, goes well with you know Galatians 3:28. I mean, and people have pointed that out. So if you take those passages um, and let them have a little more light, you do see that subtle subversion. The problem, of course, is you've got the household codes too, you know. So the, and the problem is we have to figure out like what what's Paul's own location in all of this. So so I'm I'm one of those people that I would love to make to make Paul sound perfect and that he's got it all together on this, you know, so our friend Scott McKnight, and uh, he was actually one of my profs, you know, back in my seminary days when he was a young scholar there. And I had, I overlapped with him a little at Northern Seminary. And that was right around his time, his Philemon commentary came out, Colossians and then Philemon. And uh, so when he was promoting it, he, he said in a, in, in an interview that, Paul was blind to the immorality of slavery. So that's out on the, on the interwebs. You know, you can find it on YouTube. He did the interview with, um, with the publisher. So I, so I asked him about that, you know, blind to the immorality of slavery, because it's hard for us to imagine Paul not seeing everything or, or getting everything right. So he's, he's not saying that he didn't, wasn't aware of slavery, but putting it in a moral category. So I, I, I had to think about that for a while because it, it, but could it be that Paul as citizen, you know, didn't have the same kind of, of issues and he could then appropriate the image of servant and slave for himself, right? Ser slave of Jesus Christ. And maybe didn't think of it in those moral categories. That's, that's something worth scratching your head over, I think. But, but uh, <laughs> so so subtle subversion maybe is works for me. Overt subversion, not as much. You know? <laughs> yeah, and along the lines of subtle subversion, looking at verse 11, hmm. 
where he says formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that the mention of usefulness or uselessness, quite Mm -hmm. interesting, particularly thinking about this, this context of love that he's um, out of which he's writing. And it seems like it's subtly subverts this instrumentalizing of one another or the objectification of the other person on the basis of what they can do for you. And this goes obviously beyond slavery, but we kind of do this all the time in terms of, oh, I'm friends with this person because they're connected to this person and they're useful to me in that way. You know, we, we just, we think in this kind of commerce uh, mode all the time in relationships. And so it's like interesting that he would say that Onesimus has become use, became useless to him or was useless but now he's useful both to Paul and to Philemon. And, it, and then later it says like why he was useful in terms of as a partner in the gospel um, and as a brother in the Lord. And that's like a totally different way of understanding usefulness, not in this kind of instrumentalizing mm-hmm. way. So I'm wondering if, if you could maybe give thoughts on how do you read that verse? And do you think that he's yeah. subtly subverting some things there? I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, Dr. Bowles. I, I, uh, because right now ringing in my head and this is no shade on scott mcknight but in that that the, the word eucharistan i think it is use useful or something like that um eucharistan yeah he um he scott when i say he is does does not want to make the connection that i do actually which is to see this word where it's used in regard to um to mark and, Tim, and, and when Paul writes in 2 Timothy. So that was a roundabout way of getting to what you're saying is that when, when Paul uses that word to describe Mark, he says that he has, he's useful to me. Uh, he says uh, something like, get Mark, bring him. He's useful to me in the ministry. And he uses this term. Now, Scott doesn't want to make that connection. He still has it in the, in the world of, of um, Greco-Roman slavery and sees a practical dimension to that usefulness. I, 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 I don't want to do that because I think even in this passage, we've got ministry really close by. It's the kind of thing that he, he's been talking about in this, in this section. In fact, even in the next verse or, or a couple of verses later in 13, he says, you know, I wanted to keep him um, uh, to minister on your behalf for me, you know, in my chains uh, on account of the gospel. So this idea of ministering to me and being useful for both of us, I think this is past the pragmatics. I think it's past the com- commercial, like you're saying. And I think it's just like the way he refers to, to um, Mark. And this is uh, 2 Timothy 4.11 and refers to Mark in that way. So I think, at least from my social occasion, is that we've got a person here who, for some reason, was not on Philemon's radar as uh, a member of this Christian community, right? But he was available to do service. So he sends him off to Paul. Paul, you know, helps Philemon to come to faith. And, and now, I'm sorry, Onesimus, to come to faith. I've done that again. Um, but he has to communicate back to Philemon and say, look, he's useful to me in ministry and to you now. So, he's, so this is not merely an enslaved person who can do whatever task you ask him to do. This person can do service, uh, gospel service, church service, ministry, if we want to put it in that kind of category. So I do think um, that, even you know, it's a play on words. He, he was not useful. He's useful now. 
Um, and his name, of course, it's a play on the name, but I think the usefulness is related to ministry. Oh, so we've been doing this, reading this letter and Colossians in a class we call here just called Greek Readings. It's a, it's a one credit fun class we have during lunchtime. So we just finished Philemon, you know, just a couple of hours ago. And, um, but one of the students said, she just found it kind of interesting and maybe she didn't use the word remarkable, but interesting that this little letter got, you know, made it into our canon, you know, and, and there's no argument over whether Paul wrote it or not. It's not one of those kind of disputed Paulines, but, but I do find it kind of interesting. I mean, much of it is second person singular, right? He's talking to Philemon, but then when he gets to the end, he wraps up and he says, you know, he hopes to be restored or at least we translated that way graced to you all you know and uh, through your all of your prayers this is what verse uh 20 something 22 through all of your prayers i hope to um to be be restored to you all and then he ends it with grace of our lord jesus christ be with all of your spirit so he gets plural at the end right so it almost seems like there's an expectation that the whole community is going to get this I think the other thing that I find, so I, so that's remarkable in my mind. It's even though it's a personal letter on one, on one level, it's a communal letter, right? And it has to be, we're talking about family, right? The other thing I want to say that doesn't often get uh, mentioned is that at the beginning, uh, when he sends his opening greetings and he sends the letter to, to, um, to Philemon, the beloved and our uh, fellow worker to Apphia, the sister, uh, and then Archippus, the fellow, so our fellow soldier. That it seems like, and not not no, no shade, but a lot of scholars seem to worry about where does Afia fit in with the men, right? So, uh, is she wife to Philemon? Is she wife to Archippus? Or is she sister to Philemon? And then, and then it took a woman scholar to say, wait, wait, stop for a second. This is the only letter in the whole New Testament where a woman gets mentioned as the a letter recipient. You know, let's stop there for a moment and recognize that we don't have any other letters addressed to women, right? So, so the fact that she's even getting getting shouted out in there, that we should stop there and not worry so much about her attachment to, to the man uh, in there. But she's sister, just like Philemon is is a brother. I'm sorry, uh, Timothy is brother, and Timothy the brother, Philemon the beloved. Yeah. So, so there is a uh, a sense that that there's community right off the bat. You know, he, he, even though he addresses it to we, we, a second person of Philemon, he's actually communicating to a group of people right off the bat. And I think that's kind of helpful to see. So even if he's, you know, the, the, the occasional letter, the individual one, you think of first and second Timothy, you see similar things like that, Titus. Right, right. The, the expectation for that, not only to be read in community, but in multiple communities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, to, and to subtly subvert the institution of slavery in general, like, what do you think Paul's expectation, given all that, what do you think Paul's expectation was yeah. like for, yeah. for the church of, and that it was meeting in Funnyman House for the, as it spread? Yeah. I often use my imagination to answer that. I mean, so maybe the, the historians can set me right. I'm not a historian, you know, I'm a chemical engineer who wound up going to seminary. So I, so I, I have to, so I tend to think, I tend to use my imagination, you know, that because I, it's hard for me to think that Paul actually worried about the dismantling of slavery as much as I would like for him to have thought that. But I, but I definitely think that somehow, and this is how, this is my reading of like Colossians three eleven, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek, 
of the slave or free or circumcised, uncircumcised, right? Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. That in those kinds of dualities, he's saying that those power dynamics don't exist, right? Those, you know, yet the reality of them does, right? I mean, you can you can tell a circumcised person, you can tell a bar, you know, the the Scythian, as it were, or at least you think you can tell. And um, so those categories kind of exist, but they don't mean anything, right? And in this in this new new community. So for for me, that's the point, right? That that the status doesn't that there should be no sense of status, right? No, not the way Roman uh, society operated. Um, it, it's too much for me to say that it's dismantling, but it, but as to go back to your language, that there's a subtle subversion. It allowed Christians, I think, in time to be able to say at least that if we're not to have these distinctions, then why do they exist in our society? You know, so that that allows Christians to at least move to that space. At least I hope so. Some did. Um, <laughs> I wish more did. But um, but yeah, so that's kind of my thinking on that. <laughs> I don't know how you could be thinking about one another in the way that Paul's describing and not quickly come to those more material conclusions. Like they just no longer hold or make sense. Yeah, yeah. But the changes that he's making in our entire way of viewing one another. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm with you on that. I, I just, and sometimes I, I lament maybe when I'm by myself or with other groups of people that it took so long for Christians to, to um, acknowledge that. And then I sometimes feel we go backwards in our society, even among Christians, that we're not um, not seeing how radically united we're supposed to be, and uh, and and we seem beholden to the way society operates. So that 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 bothers me. I mean, I you know I'm just saying it kindly here because you're all nice people, and I don't know you all super well. So, <laughs> but, but frankly, I get pretty agitated at the way a lot of Christianity in America works, not all of it, but a lot of Christianity in America um, seems to be very content with the way power works because when they're on the top, of course. <laughs> oh, we're, we are very agitated too. Don't worry. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> and welcome to the Two Cities podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I've listened to some, so I appreciate it. When you had David Horrell, I guess I shouldn't be shouting out other guests on there, but I really appreciated that episode in particular. So in particular, so that was really enjoyable. He's somebody I have always admired, admired his work. <clears throat> then I find myself doing work in the similar areas. And I thought, oh, my goodness, Dennis, what do you think you're doing? You know, this person has done all this great work. And, and then I find myself every time I'm looking at something, like I don't work at First Peter. No, he's all this First Peter work. And then I'm doing work in, in humility. And he's done all this work on ethics. I have a, a manuscript that's going, that's out now. Well, it's going through review on a, on a book on biblical humility. So it's like everything I'm interested in, he's already done it. I'm like, but that's so fascinating to me. I mean, I just, I, I find it rich and, and all, but anyway, I'm digressing, but I'm glad that you're thinking that way too. I mean, I, I, I wanna see more folks who are willing to, uh, to think outside some of the uh, confines that our society has erected that, um, that uh, Christians have bought into, yeah. Dr. Edwards, to, to what you were sharing, mm -hmm. um, this letter is profoundly remarkable in the sense that it shows the unity that you mentioned, but also the active a very explicit restoration, right? Um, I think the reality of the world, particularly I can only speak to the West, um, when situations occur that are unjust or situations that occur that are what we would deem reprehensible, 
uh, a lot of times those individuals within the context of that community or maybe that act has been committed or, or are associated with the Christian community are either one rejected or find themselves in a position where they can no longer be restored into that community. And I think we get some themes of that within this context. Because um, the reality is, is like Onesimus is kind of put on holy blast, right, for centuries. <laughs> and, exactly. And this is exactly. read to read to a church, right? Uh, read to a people and a body. Uh, and you know, yes, there's murkiness to it and, and ambiguity to it. But the reality is, I think if this letter were to be written today, I think the perceptions of uh, Onesimus and perceptions of Paul even would be highly scrutinized. Uh, because how polarized we are in terms of our, I think, oh, our mired lens of unity and restoration, of course, with accountability, right? We don't see Paul in any sense in this letter saying that there is no lack of accountability, um, but right. the reality of kind of the rest, restorative, uh, the unity, uh, the unity at the cost of the cross, right? Not at, at all costs, but at the cost of the cross, uh, we don't necessarily see that uh, embodied in so many of mm. Some of, wow. the, some of the wildest things that we've seen experience, hmm. just say in the past 10 years, let alone yeah. Um, yeah. longer than that. You know, I, I yeah, amen. I, I think with you, Brother Daniel, I was thinking also, as you were talking, I was thinking about something that uh, Brother Josh was saying earlier about, about, um, about um, honor, shame and power and such. And I, and I thought how, in, in our in our society, and maybe it's because of the way you know, America operates and some of our values that that um, you do have to advocate for yourself. I mean, that's the way our, our society seems to be set up. And if you don't make enough noise, nobody's going to listen to you. So you have to get a lot of people to make noise. But I think that while we've assigned all these negative things to Onesimus, the reality is Paul is advocating for him, right? Paul Paul is is speaking up on his behalf, and Paul is using his leverage here. It was relational equity to do that, and sometimes I don't. I don't think I don't think Christians do that as much. You know, I don't. I don't think we stand up for each other. We we basically say, especially if somebody did something wrong. You know, we rather and uh, and and if we assume if we assume Anastasius did something wrong, I, I'm not even assuming that he did. But but if we say he did something wrong, then Paul's advocating for somebody, um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, a restorative posture, not a not a, a punitive one. Yet our society, even Christians are not like that. Oh, you got to get what you deserve. And, and such there's this, and, and the people in power don't always advocate for those who don't have. So that, I mean, I wrote a book called Might from the Margins because I'm saying, I don't want to wait for, for uh, people to advocate for me. I, I'm, we're going to have to do it ourselves because to be waiting on the power to uh, give up power, that, that just doesn't happen, right? But I like what Paul is doing. He's leveraging his his relationship with with Philemon to get Onesimus um, uh, a better relationship and a better situation when he comes home. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of uh, kenosis amongst those with the power. No, there isn't. And, you know, it's funny, as you mentioned kenosis, this is the other sticky point is that um, uh, what does kenosis mean for the person who's in the weak, uh, vulnerable position, right? So our friend Nijay Gupta, he has an essay out there called uh, Cruciform Onesimus, question mark. And uh, so he wants to explore that notion of, of kenosis, of emptying for the folks who are already in the margins. 
Um, so, and, and that's good. I mean, because when we often use, talk about those terms, you know, and you hear people in power saying, oh, we need to really be humbler and all that, <laughs> you know, oh yeah, you do. But when you're talking to people who've already been humbled by society, that um, don't, don't preach that to me, you know? <laughs> so there is a sense here that, that the kenosis, I, I mean, really the, the kenotic uh, move is Philemon's, you know, to make, is that he's got um, to make room. And if there is something lacking in the fellowship, if we say it that way in verse six, or, or that there's something about the, um, uh, the working of that, it would become active. He says something like that, that the fellowship of your faith become active in their gaze, that there's, um, uh, that that would include here the move for him to humble himself. And it's not about Onesimus having to change up in any way. <laughs> Has Paul gone there? With the in Christ language, like, like gone under Christ and positioned himself under Christ to be able to communicate to Philemon to to empty himself also. So you, you see a lot of Paul. We hear a lot about Paul's authority over Philemon to be able to like tell him mm. these things, but mm. he situates himself the entire time a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and then the constant in Christ language, setting himself under Christ and then communicating to Philemon to do the same. Yeah, no, wait, wait, what, what, what do you, what do you get in that? Are you, are you saying so like, so like Paul's doing what you're saying, like rather oh. than, uh, rather than telling somebody to be humble oh. from a power thing, gotcha, he's already saying, gotcha. I'm in a position where I'm under Christ and I'm communicating this to you. Ah, oh, oh yeah. I say, amen. So he's modeling the very thing that he's asking for, which I think is what Michael Gorman would say too, in his cruciformity book that there's that, that Paul is, yeah, that he's actually modeling the kind of thing he wants from Philemon and others too. In that sense, I give Paul his props there. Even if he's not the straight out abolitionist, he is the person who's saying, I want, um, I want this to be about uh, family and about love and about um, our, our, our community. Yeah, thank you. No, that's good. I like that. I'm wondering, I, I know you've mentioned a few things already, but just as a more personal question, what is it that drives your passion for this book? Maybe mm. what got you initially interested in spending so much yeah. of your academic time? I know that yeah. for most of us, myself included, there's always some kind of a personal passion behind mm. the things yeah, that I graduate. So I'd love to hear yours. Well, thank you. I, you know, it's funny. I found myself drawn toward the, as, as Michael Gorman once put it, the back of the Bible in that I did my doctoral work in James. I, you know, wrote a commentary in First Peter, and I tend to be in those general epistles. And, uh, and I think maybe because Paul was always in the spotlight, I felt like, oh, there's so much stuff on Paul that I wasn't, I didn't see myself going to do much work in Paul. But I was approached on a, on a project uh, that got me into Philemon in, in more depth. And uh, I guess what resonated with me, Dr. Bowen, it was more because of my social location as an African-American and descendant of enslaved people, I thought, yeah, I want to I look at this letter again, and I want to look at it in a way that honors Onesimus, um, if we can. I mean, there's a, there's a series of essays um, called Our Brother Onesimus, I'm sorry, Our Onesimus, Our Brother, and um, there, in there, there's an essay even about the silence of Onesimus, you know, and, 
And while I don't agree with all the conclusions of the author, there is something that I, I that resonated with me in saying, okay, we don't hear from him, but in many ways, we don't have to assume the worst, which we've done. So I think that's because of where I'm in society. I feel like I've been marginalized. And, uh, I, you know, I, I write about that. And maybe, you know, as I'm older now, maybe it doesn't, and I don't talk about it as much, but but there were many times when I've been dismissed and and treated as if I'm ignorant or or um, or if people speak for me or instead of me or over me. So it was out of that that I said, yeah, I wanna I wanna see if we can legitimately, um, without reading too much into the text, um, give some dignity to Onesimus. So yeah, it was kind of personal in that regard. Thank you. So. I'm a, I'm a pastor of multi-ethnic church and yeah. new to it. Right. Like I, I mm -hmm. just, I've been in the role for a couple months now and, oh, awesome. and it's just this trip, right. I'm not supposed to, I'm this white guy pastoring multi-ethnic church. And how does a white guy pastoring multi-ethnic preach this? How do you, how do you preach what we're talking about? Like in a way where it's not like me as the authority, as the white guy colonizing the texts coming at it. How do, Yeah. Does it, so it's so it can get that across without me yeah my whiteness to it if that makes sense it, it, it makes a lot of sense and I, I respect that question I and 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 pardon me if I if I hesitate a little bit in answering because I I think about that a lot actually Josh and I mean I I served churches that all to one degree or another called themselves multi-ethnic I, I twice planted churches the one in New York didn't didn't take off so hot we planted the same year as Redeemer a church that y'all might have heard of, you know. <laughs> I met Tim Keller the year I was planted the church, and I said, "Ain't nobody coming over to my church." But I, um, <laughs> I shouldn't have said it like that. But we didn't, we didn't take off. But, but we were, we're certainly ministering to a different uh, group of people. But the, um, the reality of it is, in my urban ministry experience in multicultural settings, I have, I have grown um, a little very. Uh, well, I've been pretty vigilant about that world and that context, that kind of ministry. And so that's why I'm taking so long to answer the question, because part of my part of the challenge I have is I don't know how much advice I can give to white folks doing ministry in that context, because, you know, every space is different. But but one of the things that I think you would agree with, at least as I'm picking up from this conversation, is that you would want to respect and hear the voices of other people besides you know your own you said you don't want to colonize the text so i would say part of it part of what you do when you're preaching is bring in the voices of people that are not your own and i'm sure you do that already i mean there when i mentioned lewis brogdon he's african-american he wrote that book um on on philemon and uh, and i'm and there's a lot more african-american scholars who have written on this book including the um uh, Onesimus, our brother, um, collection of essays or African American scholars. So I think it's helpful to to say this is how African American brothers sisters are reading this text who have come from an enslaved uh, a legacy of of slavery in our country. And then I I was reading um, an African scholar too who also um, has a, a South African who has made um, connections, you know, cultural connections. So those voices are important. So I think that's helpful. You know, it fills out your um, interpretive work that you're doing in the sermon. But I also think uh, that notion, notion of relative privilege and power can come in there too. That, that in some sense, 
maybe you get to play the Paul role at times, or sometimes you're in the Philemon role, even if you're not in the Onesimus role. And so maybe there's a voice there that can be highlighted or something. Anyway, I'm just now thinking about that, but that's, there might be something to, to work with on that. Hope that's getting at your question. Yeah. Real quick, I just want to say thanks for that. I know that's oh. a weird, uh, that's a hard question to ask and, and answer. And yeah. That well, dynamic there. I appreciate what you're saying. Really well, did. thank you. Thank you. I and, and I appreciate the spirit that you have in, in, in hearing my answer. I, I try to um, honor my own journey and some of the things I've learned, but I don't, I try not to be, you know, well, you guys don't know me very well, but I try not to be snarky or dismissive of people's questions. But at the same time, I have gotten, um, I've grown weary of some spaces in Christian America that um, that have given uh, passive commentary or even patronizing commentary of, of my my station and my place and my history, and uh, as if we can just say, well, we talked about that. You know, we talked about race today. Check that off, and we get into the real stuff tomorrow. And uh, and that's a privilege that that a lot of Christian America, white Christian America, exercises, and and many of us don't have that. So I, I respect the question and I just wanted to make sure I responded um, thoughtfully and carefully. So thank you, Jack. appreciate that, yeah. Well, Dr. Edwards, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on currently and um, where you are, how people can find more of your work. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, I'm on social media almost everywhere with Rev Dr. Dre, that's my uh, handle. So certainly on Twitter and Instagram, I've been less present on Facebook. Um, and, uh, and I have a website, RevDrDre.com. Uh, so I have been working on humility as something I mentioned in our conversation. I try to take a serious look at uh, doing uh, almost like a biblical theology of humility. It, and uh, I wanted it to be an academic study, but, but with practical implications. So I draw on my pastoral experience over three decades, but also on my, my New Testament uh, scholarly background. And, and I'm really excited about that. And hopefully that can um, uh, get, get out there pretty soon. So that's something I spend a lot of time on. And I'm also working long-term on a couple of commentaries, a deeper dive into First Peter, and then also one, two, three, John, I'm working on a commentary on that. So those are longer term projects, but I'm very excited about the possibilities of those. So thank you. Well, we look forward to those, Dr. Edwards, and we're so thrilled to have you on the pod and to be able to talk about uh, Philemon with you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.